0: Please join me in reading Matthew 5, verses 21 to 48. You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them and then come to offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you can't make even one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants, you to, wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to, to the one who asks you, And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain to the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect.
1: Well, in the first year of my life, NASA launched an object into space called the Voyager 2. This was the second of two objects that were launched with the intention of exiting our solar system. And so what they thought was that we're going to send this thing so far out there in hopes that maybe we will be able to communicate with some other species or some other life form in the galaxy. And so what they did is they put this thing on it, you can see it uh, there, I've blown it up on the next slide, called the Golden Record now, the golden record is a kind of time capsule to communicate the story of our world to extraterrestrials. It was on this 12-inch gold-plated record, and it contained the sounds and images selected to portray the diversity of life and culture on Earth. Sounds like the surf, and wind, thunder, birds, whales, and other animals. Musical selections from different cultures and eras, and spoken greetings— from Earth people in 55 languages. And so the idea was that this thing is going to be floating out there for decades, centuries, millennia, who knows how long, and eventually someone will come across it and they will learn all about humanity. But Carl Sagan, the the scientist who was overseeing this project, he he acknowledged the spacecraft will be encountered and the record played only if there are advanced spacefaring civilizations in interstellar space. And I read that part of the story, and I was like, oh, dang it. Like, you have this idea. Like, what a great idea. Let's send some message about our people out in there and hope that someone else in the universe can find this and learn all about us. And he's like, yeah, but there has to be someone out there. Like, otherwise, it just floats around in space, right? It's kind of sad to think about such a meaningful record, kind of the best of what humanity had to offer, but no one to appreciate it. When I read about the Voyager last week, my mind was already on the Sermon on the Mount, so I couldn't help but think about how fortunate we are that Jesus' golden record found it to, uh, its way to us. The Sermon on the Mount, it's like his greatest hits. It's like this is, this is everything I want to share. This is right packed into one space here, and it found its way to us. Now, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't tell us about life on some other planet. That would also be interesting, but it tells us a lot about life on our planet. It tells us about how to live life well on our planet. And so this month, we're looking at examples of things Jesus didn't say in that famous sermon of his as a way to help us think about what he actually did say. Last week, Graham got us rolling. We talked about how everyone wants his message to be, life should be easy. But when we start off reading this sermon, we realize that he's acknowledging, actually, life is not going to be easy at all. But far from driving the crowds away, he actually had them sitting on the edge of their seats, even after telling them, life is not going to be easy. So, the Sermon on the Mount, I've talked about it before. i uh, got to admit that every pastor preaches about this more than once, let me tell you. Uh, but my favorite time uh, teaching about this actually came in 2008. So, a number of years ago, I had this idea that I wanted to preach from the Sermon on the Mount, but it's just so packed full. I thought, like, I can't rush through this. I need to take my time. And I could, then I had the idea, well, what if I just took an entire year and so, for those of you who've been around for like more than 10 years would know that in 2008, we spent 11 months teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. We went really slow. Let's just say that everything Graham talked about in 25 minutes last Sunday, I took two and a half months to talk about, all right? And so, by the time we got to verse 21, which is where Mel started reading for us today, it was the middle of March. So, I say that to point out that the pace of this morning's message does not reflect the significance of the issues As you might have already gathered from the passage that was read, there are some pretty heavy things in this passage, and I'm just going to skip over them pretty quickly. And that's not to demean them. We should take this slow. We should take 11 months to go through this. But in this series, we want to try to get some bigger themes. And I'll come back to that before we wrap up later. So today we're going to talk about how Jesus' first century teaching leaps over the millennia to challenge our modern cultural insistence that first and foremost, we should look out for number one. That's the message that we hear around us in a million ways, in advertisements, in conversations. If you pay attention to it, if you happen to be gathering with friends or family this weekend, listen to how much of what's talked about surrounds that theme of looking out for number one, looking out for yourself, making sure that your life is going well, making sure that you're taking care of yourself. But what Jesus says in this next section of the Sermon on the Mount blows that kind of thinking out of the water. What comes next is a a sequence of six consecutive you have heard that it was saids, followed by six clarifying, but I tell yous. Now, this is interesting, because at the tail end of last week's reading, Jesus made this very interesting statement. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So first he tells them, he makes it very clear, you can't cut even a piece of this law out. You've got to fulfill it. And not only do you need to fulfill it, you need to do better than fulfilling it. And then he goes on to cut down everything that they had heard. About the law and the prophets. As Donald Miller put it, if you happened to be the kind of person who thought they knew everything about God, Jesus would have been completely annoying. So, let's dive in and hear what he actually said. We'll just read a few snippets here. Starting at verse 21, "'You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment.'" Now, it goes without saying that it's quite unlikely that anyone who happens to be in the room this morning will ever murder someone. Hopefully, that's the case, right? Um, So, the question could be asked, is this then irrelevant, this idea of this command of not murdering? And I was thinking about Jesus' initial crowd, the people who were listening to the first Sermon on the Mount, and it would have been very similar. I mean, I'm sure the, the instances of murder were a little higher back then, but at the same time, he's talking to a bunch of people. If you're sitting there listening to this wandering rabbi, murder's probably not the first thing on your mind. And so this command, you shall not murder, and everything goes along with it, while important, doesn't actually apply to that many people. But anger, now that's something that we all experience to varying degrees. I got some images to, to help us understand the different ways that our, our anger shows up. First, there's like kind of the internalized anger. The anger that... like. Burns and seeds inside of us, and probably no one can really see it on the outside. Oh, but it's there. Or, and then there's the, the anger that lets itself out. It's like, I can't hold in any longer, and so you maybe lash out at someone else. And then there's like, put your fist through the laptop anger. And we've all experienced each one of these uh, in various times in our lives, right? Now, the Jewish teachers had made the fundamental error of thinking that the divine law was concerned only with a person's actions and not with their heart. And that's what Jesus comes to correct. He said, yeah, okay, so you've heard don't murder. Yeah, of course not. But don't even be angry with someone. He wanted to try to get to the point of, like, why shouldn't we murder someone? It's for the same reason we shouldn't be angry with them. And then he goes on in verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, First, go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and offer your gift. Two weeks ago, uh, I shared about my sister's accident. She was in a very serious car accident and spent a while in the ICU. Um, Fortunately, she's recovering very well physically, and so I appreciate your support and prayers along the way. But two weeks ago, as I was sitting here, it had just happened two days earlier— And I think I talked to probably three different people who had maybe heard. They were on our prayer list that we send out with significant requests for our community. And they came up and they would ask me about it and say, like, man, like, this must be tough for you to be here this morning. And I said the same thing to three different people. I said, like, you know, I just compartmentalize. You know, I just need to kind of put that part of my life over here. And then I need to just have this part of my life going on over here. And and it's going to be okay. But as I was, like, standing here in worship and singing these songs, I was thinking, well, how messed up is that? Like, that's not what life is supposed to be. That's not what church is supposed to be. It's just like, oh, the difficult part of my life, I just close and put a lock on it, and then I come to church, and then I'm happy and and whatever. And it was kind of overwhelming me. And so when we had the kids up here, I, I invited us as a church community to pray for my sister. But I think this is something that we all tend to do. We have this idea that we, should, that we can compartmentalize our lives, and that's what Jesus is kind of saying, right? He's like, you come to the altar, you, you want to offer your worship, you want to bring your offering here, but meanwhile, you've got something else in your life going on that needs to be fixed. Like, forget this. Don't show up to church if you've got someone that you've got to make amends with. Just leave. Make amends with them. Work things out. Get rid of this. Like, this is more important here. Don't think that, that coming to God, that bringing your gift to the altar is more important. No, no, no. They're part of the same life. You've got to get one figured out. It's like the song that we sang this morning, intentionally, everything is sacred. Our worship, it's all tied up with our daily living. And so Jesus' words about anger, they're just the first in a series of challenges for us to start thinking about what the people around us are going through and feeling and what are experiencing instead of just looking out for ourselves. So instead of just thinking, well, I've got to make sure I'm right with God here, think about, well, actually, have I offended someone else? Is there someone else that needs help? Maybe I should be doing that instead. Now, I don't know, but if I'm in that first century mountainside crowd, I'm starting to get nervous. If he just, like, said, you can't even be angry with someone, what's going to come next? Well, let's find out what comes next. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Dang it. I should have left after the anger comment. Now I've got to play it cool. Now I've got to sit here on this mountainside and pretend that he's talking to someone else. Because I'm not in that category, right? Recent surveys have revealed that 45% of women and 55% of men are guilty of committing adultery. That's crazy. Those are big stats. But fortunately, it wouldn't be like that in the church, right? Like, people in church don't do that, right? So there's a, another survey that was done, 1,000 subscribers to Christianity Today magazine. Now, just because you subscribe to Christianity Today magazine doesn't mean you're following Jesus, but chances are, right, there's a little there's a little connection there. So, subscribers to Christianity Today, 23% indicated that they had had sex outside of their marriage. 45% had done something sexually inappropriate. So, whatever those numbers are, they're not good, okay? So, this is something that if, if very few people will commit murder, clearly more people will be unfaithful in their marriages, But as Jesus points out, much like avoiding murder, simply avoiding adultery is no clear indication that our relationships are healthy and whole. This part of the Sermon on the Mount has always been particularly troubling, because I am among the majority of us who have looked at someone with lustful eyes. For someone who loves God and has every intention of being faithful to his wife today, tomorrow, and always, as I pledged some 22 years ago, it's troubling to hear Jesus refer to me as an adulterer. But Jesus' point was not to induce guilt or shame. It never was. His point was to change the way that we see and think about the people around us. And that that is really important. It's not just the the act that is wrong, but it's the way that we think about the people around us. Recently, I was watching an old 90s movie, and Kevin Spacey was in it. Kevin Spacey, who has had a recent fall from grace, uh, revelations about inappropriate actions years ago. And in the world of Me Too, Uh, when revelations like this are coming to the surface, I believe Jesus' words in Matthew 5 remind us that it's not really the thing you get caught for that's the problem. I mean, that's a problem, absolutely. But it's more so the way you see other people. Like, that's the root of the problem. That's where the action grows out of. And that's what Jesus was saying 2,000 years ago. He's like, yeah, this is a problem over here, this unfaithfulness, yeah. But it's actually, it actually begins in your heart. It's when you begin looking at that other person, that's where it all grows from. When you begin thinking that you can treat someone disrespectfully, that's where the actual offense has its birth. Now, whether we're in a marriage relationship or not, we fulfill the law when we honor the sanctity of our fellow image bearers by resisting the urge to cheapen or objectify them. Now, as long as I'm looking out for number one, I can be a consumer all I want. If I'm looking out for my own interests, then I should do whatever kind of makes me feel good. I should do whatever helps me get get forward in life. I shouldn't have to worry about if I'm hurting other people's feelings, whether they know it or not. But there's this teaching that comes out in Paul's letter to Timothy. It's this beautiful little passage, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. He says, treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with absolute purity. It's this beautiful little teaching where he's saying, like, treat the people around you like they're part of your family. Like, don't treat people as if you can just be casted aside, as if they're objects to be used. Treat everyone that you interact with as if they're they're someone that you love and care about. Gary Thomas has this great line in his book, The Beautiful Fight. He says, do not lust. Fair enough. I shouldn't lust. But is not doing something a sufficient goal for God's children? Absolutely not. The gospel of transformation calls me to progress from not lusting to having eyes that honor, respect, and generate compassion. God wants to transform my eyes from being selfish possessors and consumers to being his servants of selfless love. I think, that's, I think that's just beautiful. This idea that it's not about not doing something. So it, it begins, well, don't do this terrible thing. Don't commit adultery. But then, it's, but then it's, don't even lust after a person. But actually it goes further. It's treat people like brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Like treat people like you love them and you care for them. Then Jesus' teaching on divorce ups the ante. In a culture where a husband could destroy his wife, both economically and socially, by divorcing her, and could do so for almost any reason at all, Jesus calls husbands to a higher plane of accountability. So it's like, in the beginning, sure, okay, you know, marriage lasts forever. Now, that wasn't always working, and so, okay, well, well let's have some, a concession for that. So a man would have to issue a certificate to his wife. So there'd be some kind of accountability to the community. But people were taking advantage of it. And Jesus says, no, we're, that's not what this is for. He does the same thing when he addresses the issue of oaths. Again, who makes oaths? We don't make oaths, but we kind of do. We say, I promise you, or you can trust me. We say these things because it's hard to trust one another. If we're all liars, we kind of all have to be liars. The more people look out for number one, the more people will feel like they have to look out for number one. And so we have to find a way to try to break that. Now, in these examples, Jesus is demonstrating that by only looking out for our own interests, we're eroding our relationships with others to the point where there's nothing left to stand on. Trust is shattered, promises are broken. Lives are destroyed. And so what are we going to do about it? Martin Lloyd-Jones writes that the gospel of Jesus Christ concerns every part and portion of our life. And we have no right to say that any part of our life is outside its scope. Now, so far, Jesus has been challenging his hearers to avoid taking advantage of and harming others. And now in the final stretch of our reading, he challenges the way that we respond when we're the ones who are taken advantage of or harmed. Now, surely in this case, we can look out for number one, right? Surely we have to look out for number one when someone is harming us, right? Matthew 5, 38 to 39. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also." Teaching doesn't get any easier, does it? A few years ago, I think Owen was in grade six at the time. Um, he was getting picked on at school. And uh, I can identify with this because when I was in grade five myself, I changed school, I went to a new school, and I was, I was bullied. Uh, I can remember just being, like, punched in the gut and uh, at recess, dropping to my knees and, and people laughing. Like, I can remember what it felt like to be bullied, to be picked on. Um, I can remember that. So when my kid comes up to me and tells me this, you know, obviously it's heartbreaking. And so we're kind of talking him through this over a period of time. There was one particular kid who just, for some reason, he just wouldn't leave him alone. Every time he walked by him in the hall, he would just like punch him in the shoulder or he would like elbow him into like the, the, the... clothes hangers or whatever that was there, where he would, he would push him to the side. He would always do something. He would stick at his leg and trip him in the hallway. And this was happening. And we're, we're giving him all the encouragement we can to just try to, we'll try to be friends with them. try to include him in stuff. Try, like, we're giving him all the stuff we can. And, and he's just like, I can't do this every day. And so one night, we were in the kitchen, and I said, all right, uh, I want to show you something. I said, I want you to come up, and I want you to hold your hands like this. I said, and I want you to push me, as hard as you can. He's, he's 6'4 now, he wasn't then, so it's not that impressive. And he's like, seriously? And I'm like, I want you to come and hit me in the chest as hard as you can. And so he comes and hits me kind of lightly, and I'm like, that sucked. Try again. And so we did this a couple times, and I said, this is what I want you to do. I said, the next time that he comes up and punches you in the hallway, I just want you to push him to the ground. And I said, I know that this kind of goes against everything that we've taught you and raised you to do. I realize that. I said, but I really think that the bullying ends if you do this. So the next day he goes to school. Kid comes along, punches him in the shoulder, shoves him to the ground. Kid looks at him like, what the heck's going on? And it was over. It was done. They became kind of friends. A couple of years later, I ended up coaching them on the same baseball team. Never told him that I'm the one who told him to do that, of course. Then I'd have to fight his father. And <laughs> you know how it works. Now, listen. Like, I'm so well aware that, like, probably half the room here is judging me for my parenting. <laughs> and I wouldn't have told the story if I wasn't okay with that. And I also realize that you think, okay, wait a second. Like, you just read a passage about turning the other cheek, and now you're saying that you taught your kid to, like, Fight back. And, but the reason I want to say this is that, like, the world isn't black and white. The world has all kinds of grayscale out there. And for years, like, I can tell my kid for years, like, do everything other than do this. But I think that this passage can be a dangerous one if we think it means let someone abuse you. That's not what Jesus is saying. And so sometimes, I think, statements need to be made. And I think sometimes boundaries need to be established. Not as a first response. But don't think that Jesus was telling you that you have to be hurt by someone because that somehow is the loving thing to do. So I think we need to be careful. The law given by Moses was intended to control excesses. So think about this. The reason the law, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, was established was because before that, it would be like an eye for a life. You, you punched my son and now he's blind, I'm going to kill you. This is how people lived. And God was like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. So how about we just like, make things even here? You lose an eye, you lose an eye. Knock out the tooth, knock out the tooth. Let's, let's settle things. But Jesus is like, okay, so that's, that's how things started. But then this became the standard. Then it became when someone offended you, it was like an opportunity to get back at them. Oh, like you injured me on the road? Well, now I'm going to injure you on the road rather than extending grace or mercy or forgiveness, right? So people had set up this this concession now as the standard, and that was no good. Gandhi really appreciated Jesus' teachings. He had this great line. He said, an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. Like that doesn't work. That concession works in a very violent culture, but as humanity learns to grow uh, a little bit, grow up a little bit, uh, it doesn't work so much. And so we need to go beyond eye for an eye. So now turn the other cheek. Because unless non-resistance is our first option, we'll never choose it. Unless it's the first thing that we think about, the first thing that we try, we'll never choose it. If we always go to retaliation, if we always go to violence first, then that's just what we'll choose. So Jesus presents this as the better way to respond when you're injured or insulted. Now that little section continues, verse 40. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. There's something really neat about this text. Uh, As you notice, there's a a progression. It it starts off with, like, imagining a situation where someone hits you, and then you imagine a situation where someone sues you, and then where someone pressures you, And then someone asks you to give them something, and then someone asks you to borrow, for them to borrow something for you. It's kind of this this progression from something that would be really challenging to something that's a little easier. And I started thinking, like, what if we were to read this passage in reverse? It might be a little easier for us to get to the the turn-the-other-cheek thing, right? What if we started and said, imagine someone asks you to loan them something, would you be willing to say yes to that? Would you be willing to say, I'll loan you this book, even though you'll probably get it wet and it'll have, like, all funky edges on the pages? I'm willing to loan you that book. Or I'm willing to let you to borrow this tool, even though you, you might break it, and then I'd be out a shovel or whatever. Could we start there? And, and then if you're willing to let someone borrow something, maybe if someone says, I really need this, could you just actually give that to me? Maybe, because you're used to loaning stuff, you would actually say, actually, yeah, I can actually just give this away with no expectation of return. And if you're used to giving something away, then if someone, like, forces you something, if they force you to say, you have to do this now, you'd be like, you know what, I have so much experience giving stuff away that, you know, even though you're being a jerk about it, I'll help you out. And then what if that person actually, like, sued you and took advantage of you? Maybe you'd be willing to just deal with that. And then maybe, finally, if someone hits you, you'd be willing to say, I think I can turn the other cheek on this one. So we start with the small things. We start with the things that, if we look out for number one, we don't loan anyone anything. Why would I loan you? There's risk involved. You never give anyone anything. But if we get rid of the look out for number one idea and start with the th- small things, then we can get to that bigger place, that higher calling. At the beginning of the summer, uh, I, was, I heard a knock at the door, doorbell rang, whatever it was, and I go, and there's this man standing on my front porch. And he's like dirty and sweating profusely. And I recognized him because he'd been doing some work at our neighbor's house. He'd been doing some work for them. He was digging this big trench. And he's standing there, dirty and sweaty, and he's like, Uh, I got a question for you. He's like, "Um, I've I've dug up, like, all of this dirt from your neighbor's yard, and it's just going to be so much effort to lug it all and put it in the back of my truck, and then I got to drive it to a landfill site, and I got to shovel it all out again. He's like, do you have any need for, like, a big pile of, of soil? I'm like, no, sorry, man. And he's looking at me just like this, please. I'm like well, I don't know, what do you have in mind? He's like, well, what if I just like, spread it out thinly across the back of your lawn, like at this back corner? You got a bit of a slope there, I could level it out. I've got this great grass seed, I'll, I'll rake it all in for you, I'll water it, it'll be great. I'm like, sure. So it didn't rain, ever, after that day. And then, at the end of the summer, this was the result. This is my lawn, at the back of my lawn. And all summer long, I had to put up with my kids making fun of me. Hey, look at the neighbor kids are playing in the sandbox. Hey, you guys want to go to the beach out back? Hey, Dad, are you planting a garden out there? What's going on? I mean, all summer long, just digs at their father for helping a person in distress. Anyways, it was a small act and I paid for it and I had to spend money on new grass seed and every morning got out there watering it in September. looks a little better now. Clarence Jordan, reflecting on this passage, this this, section sequence of verses that Jesus goes through. He says all it adds up to one thing. Let yourself be imposed upon. Now listen, I'm no hero for letting the guy put grass dirt at the edge of my yard. But there are gonna be opportunities in our life where someone is going to wanna impose on us. And are we willing to do that? To say, man, it's probably less of an inconvenience for me to have crappy end back in my yard than it is for this guy to go through all this effort. Am I willing to let someone be impose on me? Hopefully we'll be able to. But then this passage just gets crazy. Then this passage says, Jesus says toward the end of this section, love your enemies. Love your enemies. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? Like, seriously, everyone loves their family and friends and whatever. But love your enemies. But Jesus says this because the boundary lines we draw between ourselves and one another, they don't exist in God's sight. And as we grow and mature in faith, it won't exist in ours either. And so our task is to embrace this leveled-out kind of love, where we're willing for others to take a little advantage of us, if it helps them more than it would hurt us. If we're willing to to actually love someone who maybe has hurt us or offended us or isn't like us. And this is the beauty. Clarence Jordan makes this great observation. He says, Jesus didn't tell his followers to love their enemies because it would or would not work. It probably never occurred to him to raise the question of whether or not it was practical. You just love people. You just serve people. You just look out for their interests instead of just looking out for number one. Regardless of the outcome, we're called to look out for everyone, not just number one. Now, if the Voyager spacecraft was intended for extraterrestrial beings, the Sermon on the Mount was intended for the most terrestrial of all beings. Ordinary people like you and I. It's practical. It's hands-on. Day-to-day living. And if we do miss out on some of the details by reading it so quickly, as I said earlier, perhaps we also receive the benefit of noticing some overarching themes if we read a big chunk of it at once. An overarching theme like, stop looking out for number one. You're not the center of the universe here. But as another commentator observes no man can hope to live like this unless he has the Holy Spirit. It is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth until the Spirit of Christ enters us. You listen to the stuff I'm saying this morning and say, not possible. Yeah, you're right. If on your own effort, yeah, not possible. But if we allow God to move and work in us, then yes, possible actually. And in fact, probable. This past week, I'll close with this. Um, Melissa went to spend some time with someone uh, who was going through a rough time and had to have a difficult conversation. She had to have a challenging conversation. And when she got home, she was telling me all about it. And she's telling me, like, she's in there saying, like, when I was talking, like, I felt like God was speaking through me. Like, I, f- I could feel, like, the Holy Spirit in that room. Like, I like just, like, I never do. It was just, like, God was so with me. And I was listening to her tell this story, And the thought that entered my mind as I was listening was this is what it means to follow Jesus. Just go put yourself out there for someone. Make yourself available and trust that God will work through you and speak through you. But it requires the decision, right? Eugene Peterson says rightly, the way of Jesus is not the only way to live. There are innumerable other ways. There are lots of ways we can choose to live. But he says, I want to train our eyes and ears to see and hear precisely what is distinctive in the Jesus way so that we can make the daily, hourly discernments required to keep us faithfully obedient in and on the way of Jesus. That's what we're invited to. I'd invite you to stand. Lord, I've been thinking a lot this week just about how blessed we are to have these words. Last week, we talked about all of the the blessings in these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. But blessed are we because we've actually received this message, this sermon of yours. Blessed are we because we've been invited to live in a way that doesn't keep ourselves at the center that actually puts the interests of others before ourselves. And so, God, I ask that your Spirit would enliven us in this charge, in this task, that as we make ourselves available, that you would put opportunities in front of us, that you would help us be willing to put ourselves aside, to put others in front of us, and that we would be able to choose, really, daily and hourly, the way of Jesus. So we ask that you would empower us in this. As we gather around tables now, I ask that you would encourage us and use us to challenge and push each other a little further along this journey of faith. We pray these things with thanks in Christ's name. Amen.